0: to the Grim and Bloody Show. I am Kevin Nicholson, uh, writer for Horror News Net, Horror Nation, We Belong Dead. Horror know? Nation, that's a new one. Uh, that's uh, that's one I've been writing for as well. Hey. With, with me, of course, is Anthony Durand, the founder of uh, Desperate Film Fest. Anthony. Joe Flynn, creativity horror host, award-winning creativity horror host. Thank Joe you. Flynn. And the wonderful and the ever missed Al Omega. Welcome back. Thank you, so creature features, uh, horror host who's all over streaming services, uh, these days from Roku to uh, uh, you know, to YouTube and points beyond. He's also at your local
1: horror convention, he's also on my TV. I just added Eugenia, Oregon, channel 29.
0: Hey, nice, congratulations,
2: congratulations, Al.
0: And with us today is author Steve Rubin, author of nine different books, including the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. That right. uh, is, you see the image right behind Woo. you, and the James Bond Encyclopedia. We need to have like, dun dun and and the, and the Either and that.
3: And I, I gonna,
0: yeah,
3: I, I'll put that in the podcast. But I put it on YouTube, I might have MI6 over here that quite
0: Okay, <laughs> we'll make it up. I'll see. Ooh. Oh, look, oh, see,
3: you, know, you are
0: not going to escape this show without getting a question of who you think will be the next James Bond.
1: We want to know all about bondage
0: and. Uh, yeah, we you know I have a is, for Seth Rogan be honest. I was, was a I, I was the guy that was rooting for Idris. I guy was for Idris Elba. But Hey, handsome man. That's the see yeah, see that's me and that's the whole point. I was doing it. But anyway, <laughs> let's start with Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. Well, I have a feeling that this was uh you know without looking really at your uh your background too much I have a feeling that this was kind of what one of the passions that you had from a child as from being a child was this one of the your first forays well actually I
4: I was traumatized um okay I wandered in at the age of eight I was primarily watching Saturday morning cartoons and a lot of a lot of westerns
0: big valley bonanza the virginian
4: well actually predating those cheyenne sugarfoot man branded branded. yeah uh bronco you know those kinds of shows sure so one night i walked into the the living room mom and dad had the twilight zone on and it was the Mm -hmm. episode called the silence it's about a, a bet in a private club where this motor mouth who won't stop talking is uh the the Franchetone plays this ex-military guy who bets the guy half a million dollars that he can't talk for a whole year. Now, I took, I still sat there for about two minutes, and as an eight-year-old, the concept of not being able to talk for a whole year freaked me out. So I left the room, and I never watched The Twilight Zone again in, in first runs. I discovered the show in reruns like a lot of us, and... I loved Mark Scott's book, The Twilight Zone Companion, Mm -hmm. which I thought was the the first book ever to feature all of the episodes. So we got their names and who was in them. But I always felt that the book lacked something which I thought I can contribute. Because before I start to write a book like The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, which is a pretty much a three-year job, um, you really have to know who your audience is and whether they want it. And I thought that one of the things that we were talking earlier about, all the great actors who were in the Twilight Zone, arguably the best assembled cast ever, and yet most people today don't know who Burgess Meredith is, or or James Daly, or John Anderson, or Jack Klugman. And I felt that my book should be a tribute to all the performers, as well as obviously the trivia and behind the scenes information, I could gather everything. And so the book is really, I did over 500 bios of the people. So you learn a little bit about them. It's not just just the episodes and what they were about. So I think the book achieved that. And uh, I got very lucky. I developed a relationship with Rod Serling's widow, Carol, and she invited me out to the house. And I was able to get access to their files. And so I, like, for instance, they opened up the contracts. I could see how much people got paid in those days, which was interesting considering uh, how much people get paid today. And then she supplied 90% of the photographs in the book, which was great. When you're you're embarking on an encyclopedia, one of the key ingredients is photographs, and if you're forced to walk into Hollywood uh, shops and buy photographs on the street, you'll go broke very quickly.
0: <clears throat> so you really do. It shows in your <laughs> book that you really do. I, I can imagine that, that the three years you talk about uh, into, uh, into making the research on this, because your book goes incredibly in-depth with just about each and every episode as much as some of the backstory and uh, anecdotes behind uh, you know that. What fascinates me is that people don't, you talked about the lesser known actors or the actors that people aren't familiar with today. Surprises me is that people don't realize that a good deal of major stars got their first work in Twilight Zone. When you talk about the stars that they would know robert redford twilight zone william shatner twilight zone uh there was a number of other martin glandon
4: charles Charles
0: brunson Brunson. sure james Uh, coburn yeah you had all of these actors basically get their acting chops earl holliman i I think did one or two uh claude akins was another uh was another one although that he may be more of the star the actor that you you don't remember Burt uh, Reynolds. Yeah.
4: Burt Reynolds. I mean, the thing is that The Twilight Zone, interestingly, was not a hit for most of its first run. You know, uh, part of the reason that Rod had to go on camera was they were trying to emulate the success of the Alfred Hitchcock show. The first season of The Twilight Zone, Rod only did the audio narration. He did not appear on camera. Right. And, uh, the, there was kind of an interesting thing going on in Hollywood at that time. James Aubrey had come over to head CBS programming and basically he did not believe in anthology. He felt that people wanted to watch I Love Lucy with Lucille Ball. They wanted to watch Gunsmoke with James Arnest, The Untouchables with Robert Stack. They wanted to see the same persons each week or the same cast. An anthology is literally introducing you to a new cast every week. So to give it some semblance of continuity, Rod came on and became the face of the Twilight Zone. And arguably, he's probably the most famous writer in popular culture ever. I don't think anybody even compares close to him. I mean, you can't. I mean, we study Ernest Hemingway and... Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens in school, we should be studying Rod Serling. Rod Serling has a lot more we can identify today with than James Fenimore Cooper and F. Scott Fitzgerald. You ever try to read an F. Scott Fitzgerald book? Not easy.
2: <laughs> I have a question about the Twilight Zone. For you, which episode was it the hardest to write about?
4: That's an interesting question. Um, Well, there are some episodes that are somewhat mysterious. Um, There's an episode with uh, Neville Brand and George Takai. And I'm going to remember the name in a second. But it was an episode about uh, a U.S. Marine veteran. He's in his attic cleaning up and his new gardener shows up, played by George Takai. Or Takai. And um, there's some discussion about one of his war souvenirs, which is this samurai sword, and it turns out it's a haunted sword. So things are going to get unraveled in that attic. At one point um, in dialogue, it mentions that Japanese-American spies in Hawaii contributed to the plan of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Was was Was
0: that the encounter?
4: It's called The Encounter. Thank, the encounter. You. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. And that was absolutely false. There is no evidence whatsoever that Japanese-Americans living in Hawaii during Pearl Harbor had anything to do with the attack. And there was a furor that was raised in the Japanese-American community after that episode aired, and it was removed from the you know, the um, distribution block. So you didn't see that episode literally for decades. Tracking down some information on that was challenging. Uh, There was also um, the uh, incident at Owl Creek Bridge, which is the only episode which was not produced by the company. They actually purchased it. It had been a Cannes Film Festival winner. It's based on an Ambrose Beers short story, very Twilight Zone-like. But it wasn't produced by them, and that was interesting in itself. So those were episodes I had to really kind of dig a little bit further into. Um, I tried to track down everybody living who was involved with the Zone, and there's still considerable number of people. Everybody from Billy Moomy to William Reynolds, who played the you know played the officer in uh, the Purple Testament um it's just some really cool people and, and even some side characters the gentleman who played the robot fighter who fights uh, uh oh. lee, lee marvin in steel he told me all about that experience but it's funny because i was just watching that uh hugh jackman movie real steel which was actually based on that twilight sometimes it was actually a pretty oh. good movie uh, but uh those are a couple of the episodes i really did a lot of research on and then uh, just absorbing everything and anything I could find to give the reader something a little bit different because I didn't want to repeat which Zekri had done. I didn't want to do the same book again.
1: Yes. I had a question. We're happy,
0: and, oh,
1: go ahead, saying We're grateful for that because yeah. uh, some of us have had the other book already and we want to read yours now and see all the new neat stuff in it. So, but please go on there, Anthony. Now, when I heard you were coming on
3: Stevie. Uh, The the first and only thing that popped into mind was season five, episode three. Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Um, What I haven't shared with um, my group here, they're probably like, oh, "Oh, really? Uh Uh-oh, yes, Revelation. Um, That William Shatner short, my dad, when I was young, maybe five or six, Uh, My dad liked to scare me, I read scary stories to tell in the dark as a child, uh, which frightened the shit out of me. The the pictures alone were were horrifying. Uh, But my dad used to love scaring me by just telling stories that he recalled. And he told me the story of uh, a man who saw a creature on the wing of an airplane. And I'm like, Dad, don't tell me that story, right? And then maybe a year or two later, I watched it on television and the opening sequence the music is enough at nighttime as a kid back then that was enough it's like i don't want to watch this. <laughs> the music right that was enough to say i shouldn't be watching this right now but it was on and that scared the living piss out of me like it like deep down it was one of those like i'm unsettled in my soul kind of uh of uh, uh tv episodes and I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to admit I saw it because one, I developed a fear of flying. Two, I developed there's going to be a preacher outside waiting for me. And three, I, I, I didn't want to look like William Shatner. that scared. There, there were so many parts in that episode that were so well done. Um, and back then, I didn't. You know, now I've, I've watched so many films, I can kind of, I can spot the different uh, 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 points back then, it was such a well-done and thoroughly frightening episode. And later, that I realized it was based on Richard Matheson, who's done so many horror stories. Yes, but yes, this yes. one in particular um, just shook me as a kid well into my 20s. Um, now, do you have any more tidbits um, that you can share with us about that episode? I'm sure you've been asked a lot, but I'd like to hear from you. Uh, since you were at the source is there anything more you can tell us about what happened in that episode
4: well first of all it was a richard matheson episode and matheson's ability as a twilight zone writer was to take very normal people and circumstances and turn them upside down an airplane flight or two people looking at a fortune telling machine on a diner that kind of thing i mean matheson kind of predates Stephen King. You know, King would do the same thing. He'd establish a scene where somebody's having Fruit Loops for breakfast while watching Hollywood Squares, and all of a sudden a vampire would come through the window. It's like he'd throw you a curve. Matheson did the same thing. Uh, according to, um, from what I've researched, Matheson was on an airplane looking, you know, flying somewhere and looking out and and he, I guess he imagined there was somebody skiing off a cloud. You know, it's just something got in his head about a, a skier in the middle of a, a large serial, limbus, whatever. And, um, you know, that episode, um, it's a cool episode. All the airplane episodes are cool. Uh, the, that and um, Odyssey of Flight 33, which is another airplane episode, time travel episode. Um, You know, it was filmed, uh, a lot of people don't realize that uh, Richard Donner directed that episode. He would go on to direct the Lethal Weapons and Superman. And one of our great directors, um, he talks a little bit about the fact that they were running behind schedule. They were shooting on one of those uh, MGM sound stages with a tank where the water from all the water machines on the wing would get the water in there and uh, the wind machines are all there. It was kind of a crazy set. One day he went for coffee. I talk a little bit about this in the book and he hears a scream from the set and he comes racing back with his coffee and he looks down at the bottom of the tank, the concrete tank, and William Shatner was lying flat on his face looking very dead and people were screaming and yelling and then Shatner sat up and just gave him a wink and (laughs) <laughs> it was kind of trying to scare the living daylights out of them. The other thing about, um, uh, Nick Cravat who played the creature on the wing, uh, Nick was well known as Burt Lancaster's, uh, former circus buddy. They were both acrobats to- together after world war II. And, um, you know, um, uh, they didn't have a lot of money for these episodes, so they. but they were working at MGM, which of course had one of the largest costume departments ever. And apparently the costume for the creature on the wing was a bear. It was from some bear, they gave him a bear skin. So it was very low tech. Uh, they gave him that crazy makeup. But it didn't matter. It scared the crap out of all of us because the concept of somebody tearing up an engine cowling. Of course, I think when they did the Twilight Zone movie, they had a lot more money for effects and they created kind of a a digital. I guess it was kind of a digital. um, Maybe it wasn't digital, but it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it's much more elaborate. But if we're going to talk about that one. Uh, talking about Burgess Meredith for a moment, one of my favorite ones was always time enough at last for the absolute you know, you just realize there's just nothing that can be done you know, you could have done something if you knew something before, but you didn't so now, it's just too late
4: it's just not fair it's not just not fair (laughs) That's usually the one I point to as my favorite because Burgess Meredith is so well cast as this mousy bank teller. No one will allow him to read. His boss won't let him read. His wife not only won't let him read, she crosses out all the poetry. So that's she, how we know she's
1: evil. If you start destroying books for any oh, reason, you're evil. Evil.
4: Evil. Yes. And the only place he gets solace is to go into the bank vault to read at lunchtime. I mean, I would do that if I had an opportunity. Although I think I'd be a little freaked out about being in a vault. Uh, they don't, don't mention uh, anything about where his air comes from.
0: <laughs> I, I have a question. Uh, yeah. We and we started to talk about this even before the you know the show started. Twilight Zone wasn't a success uh, to uh, to start with. I'm wondering why, from this perspective of. 50 years later, um, it wasn't uh, you know, a success. But then, you know, in reading about it, it seemed like it was suffering the same problem that Star Trek suffered, that Gene Roddenberry uh, had suffered. That because the space race was in its infancy, um, people weren't into science fiction as a viable adult drama and that's the way that Roddenberry you know wanted to project Star Trek uh way Rod Serling wanted to project talking about issues and uh and and so forth these were not your kid shows why do you think Twilight Zone did not succeed that first year but incidentally went on to expand to an hour format for uh for season four
4: Well, it's a very good question. I mean, um, I think that, um, first of all, I don't know if the network CBS gave it extra effort because Aubrey was not a fan. If Aubrey could have canceled it after season one, he would have done it. The show was very popular amongst college students, amongst intellectuals. I mean, people who wanted to see good drama on television, unique drama, but the mainstay... Uh, The main audience, you're right, wasn't that into science fiction yet? This is pre-Planet of the Apes. Uh, I mean, uh, arguably, Planet of the Apes in uh, 1968 probably changed the course of science fiction by introducing a mainstream studio hit. Um, And of course, it's long before Star Wars. I think it was a combination of factors. I think anthology is very tough to get strong ratings on because they're changing the characters each week. So they didn't have a Matt Dillon to follow. They didn't mm. have an Elliot Ness to follow. They didn't have the Beverly Hillbillies to follow. I mean, the thing is, and TV was changing. TV was getting away. So, this is early. This is early 60s to mid-60s. It was going for a little bit more pop cultural fun you know beverly hillbillies was following gilligan's island was coming on i mean the 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 audience the type of writing that rod serling did very dialogue heavy not a lot of territory to cover you know they weren't what you what you call beautifully shot in terms of colorful vistas and things like that it was all almost black and white noir beautifully shot by george clemens That was on the way out. And it could be argued that part of the reason that Rod Serling never emerged as a major screenwriter uh, was I think his style of writing was going out of favor. Uh, This was the era era of of auteur filmmakers, visuals, visuals, and more visuals. He had a couple of successes. He had the Seven Days in May movie, the, the conspiracy movie, which was terrific. And then, of course, he did uh, share the writing credit on Planet of the
0: Apes. But he had Requiem for a heavyweight, if I uh,
4: Right. But that was live television back in the 50s pre-Zone. So I think his heyday was live television. Uh, he won three Emmys. And I think he won three more for Twilight Zone. Um, but I think that as much as we love the Twilight Zone, it was not the show that people ran to in 19 early 1960s.
0: Now, the other uh, one of your other big hit uh, books is involving a certain character named 007. And I find it. uh, I find it fascinating. There's there's a, a lot of story out there. Um, well, first of all, kind of if you can talk a little bit about how you kind of uh, got into James Bond, were you like a lot of the rest of us? Were you just caught it on you know ABC television, or you caught it in the theaters when you were a kid? Uh, you know, growing uh, you know growing up. And I also want to you know talk about uh, the love hate relationship that Sean Connery had with uh uh you know with the part and with the producers um uh for bond but let's talk about you know what do you um how did you get into 007
4: well my dad would go on these business trips and he would bring home paperback books invariably they were westerns he liked to read westerns now at that time i was watching a lot of westerns as i mentioned earlier uh, in the spring of 64, he came home and threw a paperback book on my desk. And it had a naked woman on the cover, all dressed in gold paint. And, uh, you know, as an 11-year-old, it was, I, I looked at him and said, what is that? The voluptuous said, e- Shirley Eaton. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you might like this. I said, okay. So I cracked open Goldfinger. And it, at, this was at a time in middle school. We called them junior highs in those days everybody was reading bond all of a sudden they had these colorful signet paperback books and i actually feature them the covers in my new edition of the encyclopedia um so this was interesting because christmas time they released goldfinger we went up to the chinese theater now i had not seen dr no one from russia would love the two earliest james bond movies which were released in the states with not a lot of fanfare is they weren't like event movies But when Goldfinger came out at Christmas, this was like a Star Wars movie. It was big deal. So we did something we never did. We went up to the Chinese and we saw the Goldfinger at the Chinese. And it was so amazing to see this movie. And this was was at a time when everybody was into Bond. And the following year, only one year later, And it's interesting because we just had six years between Daniel Craig's. Mm -hmm. Um, But Thunderball came out Christmas 65 and we all went nuts. I mean, Thunderball was just off the charts in terms of excitement and and just scope. It was just a big, big ass movie with some really beautiful women. So um, I think the combination of uh, of early puberty and James Bond was an unbeatable combination. (laughs)
1: Now which one of us didn't sit in front of the mirror, Bond, James Bond, geez. at some point growing up? It's either that or putting you know, the the twitch in your lip and try to be Elvis. There.
4: Well, thank you very much. Now, what was wondering.
0: what was Sean Connery's uh, thing about you know Bond? Was it the usual "I'm being stereotyped" because he returned to the role? and he was no um uh, he had no reluctance to play the tough guy hero uh, so i don't quite buy that his that he was afraid of a stereo uh, you know type of playing this agent was it was it that was it money what caused uh what caused Conry to leave after Uh, You Only Live Twice, and return for the huge payday, Diamonds Are Forever. Well, I
4: think there was a money issue. I think as the Bond movies became spectacularly successful, they didn't give Sean a piece. You know, they paid him a salary. I think they were very tight on the money. So whereas today, you know, where George Lucas gives, you know, Mark Hamill a, a, a point in Star Wars that kind of thing. Broccoli and Saltzman didn't do that. Also Connery on his on his time off from Bond had started to appear with for other directors like Alfred Hitchcock in Marnie. He was working for Sidney Lumet in The Hill. He was beginning to realize that there were things that he should be doing other than Bond. So I think, and the other thing is the Bond um, schedules usually they took six months of the year to film those shows. There was a lot, a lot of work for him to do. And he began to tire the long schedules. Um, He also, I think he only lived twice. The Japanese paparazzi would even go into the bathroom and go to the urinal and take pictures of him missing. So I think it was a combination of factors of not being compensated, looking for greener pastors with top directors, and just realizing there's more to do than bond. Now, and, yeah, and then, it just, and then no. of course, yeah. he leaves after only lived twice. They bring in George Lazenby, who I thought was a terrific bond, considering he had no acting experience whatsoever. But then the grosses on Her Majesty's Secret Service were not very good. They were certainly not on the level of the previous bonds. So David Picker went to uh, Scotland and made... Um, Sean an offer he couldn't refuse that he would back two of his films that he wanted to do in in Scotland if he would come back to Diamonds and that's how he got Sean back and then after that he was done but then of course he comes back 12 years later for Jack Schwartzman and Kevin McClory to do kind of a remake of Thunderball Never Say Never Again which is that's a superbly
0: right. done uh, remake I you know I think I'm a big fan of Never Say Never Again um, it's just, it's, it's kind of, um, odd to not hear the James Bond, you know, theme, but I think everything else in that film, they get right. In fact, I think they even, uh, casting wise, they even, they even, you know, get it right. Whereas, uh, Cubby and company were, uh, you know, they're not always, we're not always getting it right. Barbara Carrera. Klaus Maria Brandauer, you've got Max von Sydow as, uh, as 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 but you know, the interesting thing about Connery is, on the one hand, he, he would he would talk about the perils of being James Bond as it pertained to the rest of his uh, you know career, but then you see the evidence that he's never far, far away from 007. He is. Coming, he comes back to do Diamonds Are Forever for one what's it one million dollar, uh, payday I believe it was, and then he comes back twelve years later, to to play Bond as a way to kind of uh, spoof the image a little bit, the age
4: kind of a revisit the character. He was also very involved in the production of that movie. Interestingly, not everything was right on Never Say Never Again. They had the opportunity. To have james horner do the score which would have been Mm. dynamite and sean met horner and for some reason he didn't come across well for sean so they got michelle legrand and i think the score for never say never again is low octane uh the other thing i discovered in my research because i'm on the commentary track on the dvd release uh with uh, with john cork and um irvin kershner Irvin Kirshner, who we obviously have a lot of respect for, he did the arguably the best Star Wars movie ever, The Empire Strikes Back. He said literally to me and John that he does not like uh, he does not like to direct action. And if you think about it, as good as the character interaction was on Never Say Never Again, the action sequences in the movie are very low octane. There's a, there's a small co- motorcycle chase and the the ending is not very good in the in the the tears of Allah excavation it's not the kind of action that bond fans you know really expect so that was a little bit of a disappointment for me there but mm-hmm. um you know uh he's great he actually sean actually looks better in 83 and never say never again than he did in 71 in diamonds
0: he does put on a little bit of a punch um, yes. in Diamonds Are Forever. It's true, but um, yeah, I can. Uh, I have a lot of fun for Dim- with Diamonds Are Forever because of well, one of the things because they introduce the gay hitmen, Mister Wint and Mister Kidd, and some of the obvious uh, uh, the obvious double entendre dialogue that they have. I also like how Guy Hamilton said this whole thing is a Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon cereal, you know, crammed into two hours. That's what he wanted to play it as, and um, that's what I why I consider that one. To, it's not the best Bond film, but it's the most, I think it's one of the most fun.
4: That was, you took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, it is yeah. a fun Bond movie. Fun. I, I, talk out times have changed. When ABC aired that for the first time, when Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd have their first killing, they walk off into the desert holding hands. With the band, hands, sure. And ABC mm-hmm. cut that. That was 19, that was, well, it was probably about 1974. But uh, it's, a, it's a fun Bond movie. I, I have friends who absolutely hate it. And I have friends who absolutely love it. I, I think I, that was another time I went to the Chinese to see it. And it was an event Bond movie. You yeah. Know, the Bond movies, not all of them have been great but the production value and quality of the filmmaking has always been way up there. I mean, um, I think that in the history of movies, there hasn't been the kind of consistent quality in the series that have been shown by the Star Wars, I mean, by the Bond movies. Even Star Wars, you know, has, has dipped down quite a bit, but hopefully it'll come back.
2: Uh, I look at it this way, with James Bond, the characters just, Basically, hey, I'm a dashing man who's got a license to kill, and I'm also a lot of fun in a movie, okay? Just give me some beautiful women. We're good to go.
4: In a car Um, that explodes.
2: Yeah, in the car explosion.
4: Blow me up, Scotty. if, if If you think about it, there are few pop cultural icons that just have a stamp of approval on them. You know... You're gonna go in there for two plus hours of just pure fun. Although I have to say, this last one, No Time to Die, I don't know if you all have seen
0: it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we all, yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah. this was the most emotional of all the Bond movies. I mean, you just saw a depth of character. I thought it was uh I thought it was as much as I love Casino Royale, which I thought was off the charts in term, terms of being an, a rebooting of the character. I thought that No Time to Die was the most emotional and most interesting of all the Bond movies of late.
0: I agree. I, yeah. I agree. Now, agree. We're talking about No Time to Die, uh, which leads to the uh, last question. Who's the next James Bond in your mind? Where do they go from here
4: you know it's interesting i was watching a movie uh, just a terrible movie the other day um i'm trying to remember the name oh it's called high rise i don't know if you guys have heard of a movie Uh called high rise
0: i think so yeah yeah yeah. it's
4: just it's it's tom hiddleston as this author in this wacky building that's going through a a a class warfare but i'm looking at tom hiddleston and there's really about tom hiddleston loki there's something very Bondian about him. Uh, he
0: kind of—he's is is a, a rogue. He's a very much a rogue. Uh, Interesting, because the sentiment seems to be Henry Cavill. Um a safe choice, I think. Yeah, Henry yeah, Cavill yeah, is a safe single.
4: choice. You hit a home run. I think, uh, think uh, now. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, well, I was gonna say. say okay. Go okay. ahead, please. James, I was going to say that when Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman conceived of the Bond series of movies, they were adamant that Bond had to be a two-fisted Englishman, a guy who could throw a punch. They were very much influenced by the Mickey Spillane, you know, those pulpy thrillers. Uh, They wanted somebody that would appeal to American audiences, and he couldn't be too intellectual. He had to be a guy who could throw a punch connery within five minutes in dr no you know when he knocks out the uh chauffeur this guy can throw a punch so i'm not sure about hiddleston because he's not exactly uh charles atlas in the frame department which of course henry cavill is because he's played superman Um,
3: is he too much special forces though henry cavill i mean he he looks like yeah he's under but i think that's
0: something that you can tone down
4: Maybe you can tone, you can tone down, down
0: that, that look. The thing, yeah.
4: about, the, yes. thing, the thing about Idris Elba, now Idris Elba is very much a popular choice, but I don't think this is this is a tough one because you don't want to sound like a racist by what saying What about Ali? Happy, fun. I'm sorry? Marshala Ali. Mahashala Ali is interesting too. Oz is the guy who's on that Bridgerton TV series, yeah. Reg, whatever Reg's last name. Sure. Is. Sure. But I think that my sense is for 60 years, they've had a white Englishman or a white Scotsman or a white Australian or a white Welshman. You know, they, they've invested. They've, these movies have made billions of dollars. I think my sense is, is they're going to probably stick with the same motive. And again, I, I think Idris would be great and it would be very interesting. I think the films would do well. I don't think so. I don't think this time, maybe down the road.
1: Oh, ahead, we, Al. I was going to say thank you. Uh, with, the thing with uh, Tom Hiddleston was the same argument we had when they wanted to bring Piers Brosnan in. You know, my friends used to refer to him as the incredible foot-wide man, because uh, he's not exactly big and brawny either. And neither was, um, oh gosh, the guy that also played in Folks. Roger uh, Moore. Yes, Roger Moore. Neither one of them, none of those, those are all very slender people,
4: but well, Roger, With the right Roger, story. Roger Moore is, is, you know, should be credited very much so in reviving the fortunes of the series in the 70s. Yes, fact, It could be argued that Roger brought in the epic Bond film because uh, they kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And before everybody had tent poles, they were the only tent pole in town and we really expected a lot and they delivered i mean uh especially starting with the spy who loved me followed by uh, a moonraker, octopussy a view to a kill for your eyes only is a little more down to earth but he 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 wasn't so much a puncher uh, roger did a lot of kickboxing and Mm -hmm. some some martial arts but uh I think the audiences of the 70s wanted to get away from the darkness of the Connery, early Conneries to go with something more fun. And that's, they sold that. Now, interestingly, yeah.
1: Okay, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I
4: was was just gonna say the darkness, of course, comes back after the Pierce Brosnan movies with Daniel Craig, and they've become, of course, very
0: dark since. Isn't it interesting though, no, uh, go ahead, Jane.
4: Thank
1: you, I was gonna say, if you wanna have fun, how about uh, Hidd- Hiddleston as the bad
0: guy? You see, I can almost picture Hiddleston as Blofeld. Uh, you know, I say he was so a comedy was bad
1: guy. You know, he doesn't necessarily want to be bad. Maybe well, you he got gotta, talked you into You got to be
4: careful. You got to be careful because there, the comedy has somewhat disappeared from the series. Yes. Because of uh, the Bond movies now seem to focus almost exclusively on international terrorism. And there's nothing funny about international terrorism. There's a little bit of repartee between Q and Bond, which we love. Um, But I think that two things have disappeared from the Bond series, and I'm sorry for it. One is the little comic, the throwaway humor. The other one is the sexiness. It's almost like it's against the law anymore to be too sexy in a Bond movie. We did get Ana de Armas' plunging neckline dress, which was very nice. Yeah, but that's about the only sexy thing, and I like Leia Sedu. I think she's terrific as Madeline, but um, they don't spend much time in the sack anymore. It's almost like it's against the law for Bond to have too much fun in bed.
0: Nice I do right. wish you mentioned this. I do wish, I do hope in the next film or for the next series of films, they do bring back Ben Weishaw as uh, as Q. He was he is such fun as uh as q as kind of in this modern day and age just kind of um tech geek uh kind of uh you know kind of guys a little awkward in social circles but i think he nails it and i i really enjoyed seeing him in the few in a few scenes that he has in no time to die uh, and um, i want to see him again
4: Kevin, did, did you get the impression I he did not look very healthy on camera. He had very, his, he was, uh, you know, the indentations on his face indicated that he'd been suffering from some kind of illness. Maybe it was just my imagination, but I hope he's fine because he is wonderful.
0: Yeah. He is you know, wonderful. I, I did kind of, uh, you know, spot that, but, in those instances, you know, spotting health issues, I'm, uh, I'm completely, uh, you know, completely Blind amateur excited. on. Well, I'm completely amateur on because I, um, uh, I had no idea what Chadwick Boseman was going through yeah. with uh, Black right. Panther. No idea. No idea. And that hit me like a, uh, you know, like a shock. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but th- that yeah. could be. If, if he's healthy, I'm just saying I really appreciated his work. And I'd like to yeah, see yeah. him uh, continue as cube. Uh,
4: Are you guys fans of a show called Outlander? Oh, yeah.
0: Yes, yeah, sure. But you better for
1: Maggie Smith to show
4: up. Uh, Speaking uh, of
1: someone uh, who had cancer on the set.
4: Yeah. Well, Sam, Sam who, or however you pronounce his last name, is also an interesting possible Bond candidate because he's certainly, the women love him.
1: Oh, yeah. My, w- loves uh, him.
4: my wife and I have this conversation all the time. She's she. He's her hall pass guy guy. Mine is Gal Gadot. <laughs> ah, ah. <laughs> there you go. Nice. No,
1: no, that's totally You
3: both cool. have nice choices right there.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sticking with Hollyberry. Berry. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I like Holly Berry to
4: too. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Right. Well, thanks for uh, uh, we get, we do have to wrap it up. Uh, thanks very much uh, for for joining us, absolutely. Steve Rubin. You were uh, tremendous. We gosh we we need to have you back on again.
4: Well, listen, I owe you guys because I was late tonight and I I apologize. Oh, no worries. And uh, I want want to mention one thing real quickly. I've been writing comedy and since you guys like time travel, one of the comedies I'm out there trying to sell right now, I think you'll find this interesting. I can put it up real quickly. Uh, Here we go. Uh, (laughs) My uh, friend and I, uh, Billy Reebok, (coughs) who's a top television comedy guy, and I've written a time travel comedy about 10 people in a Plano, Texas 7-Eleven on the day they've activated the super collider in Dallas. And the minute the super collider reaches its maximum force, the Slurpee machine short circuits in this 7-Eleven franchise and the whole building is uprooted and ends up in the desert outside the great pyramids of ancient Egypt in the year 7-Eleven BC.
0: I was going to say, does it take you back to the point where they first make those hot dogs uh, that uh, seem well, to sit? Well, there,
4: there are a lot of twists and turns, and I think uh, – I, I love time travel. I'm, I'm working on a lot of different projects, but uh, I also want to well, – As long one.
1: as they have Coke Slurpees, they're okay with me.
4: Well, that's the thing is they arrive in Egypt in the middle of a civil war, and the good pharaoh has been tossed out <laughs> like Moses – and he's mm. wandering in the desert, and they find him, and they bring him into the Seven Eleven, and they're in an electromagnetic bubble, so there's still power. So they feed him a Slurpee, and he thinks it's the drink of the gods. And I hope Uh-oh. to get a nice tie-in <laughs> with the 7-Eleven company.
0: You've got to give yes. it give it to Kevin Smith to you know to do. I think he would. Be he needs perfect. something. He needs something. Yeah. You, you could have the entire crew of 7-Eleven <laughs> characters be like mall rats. Uh, I love you know, Kevin Smith. Yeah. That's a great idea. Uh, Maybe have, have Jay idea? and Silent Bob in it, you know. Or like he
1: can had awesome. me come in as the disgruntled manager, it's constantly complaining no one cleans up around
4: here. Right. <laughs> and I hate like, play that. I also want to mention that I, I have a, I have my own podcast now, so I'm now uh, joining the ranks of two and a half million of us. It's called <laughs> St- Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies. No. And, cool. uh, definitely yeah. if you guys I'm on Amazon Apple and Spotify and,
0: um, so do mine. you have do uh, you have links where people can get you're in your fourth edition of the James Bond encyclopedia uh, you that- can I now have a
4: website uh, stevenjrubin.com it's jayrubin.com which talks awesome. about a lot of the projects and um, I'm very much on Facebook every week I do a classic film review every saturday uh under uh steve rubin saturday night I and then both my both the twilight zone encyclopedia and the james bond movie encyclopedia have facebook pages
0: and people can purchase on amazon or uh
4: absolutely they're totally available on amazon and i'm
0: going to tell you that they are well worth the purchase the read is fantastic on both of them especially for us yeah. bond file you know nuts who uh you know who uh just are eagerly looking forward to each anticipating the next uh the next adventure for 007 and
4: um uh, i always say there are three great. things certain in life death taxes and james bond movies yes i, I will yeah. tell
0: you that the biggest reaction that you would get from me and and uh uh this happened with everything everyone that i saw in the theaters every bond film the biggest reaction was joy at the very end that says james bond will return because i knew that that some part of life was right was it with some part was was okay whatever was going on in the world 007 was going to be uh you know back it could have been roger moore in that view to a kill but
2: uh, and just don't worry about it, Kevin.
0: <laughs>
4: By the way, uh, you know, Tanya Roberts, uh, she should have the, the, the wardrobe mistress missed the boat with her on that project. She had the worst outfits I've ever seen a Bond girl wear. Uh, the best, of course, were in Thunderball with Claudine Auger, who's my favorite Bond girl. Uh, she just could not, she walked on water as far as I was concerned
0: best line in a in a bond film where bond uh recognizes is it um who is it was it uh in in thunderball was it daniela bianchi no not in uh she's in russia with love but where he looks down he, he manages the girl's name from the bracelet that she has oh on that, her that's ankle.
4: domino that's claudine Auger.
0: that's claudine Auger, and then she says uh he says my what the, you know what uh, what sharp little eyes do you have? And he goes, "Where till you get to my teeth. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
0: you know, you probably couldn't do that line today. No. <laughs> and you
4: probably couldn't give Dink a potch on the rear end and Goldfinger either, you
0: know? Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> but could you sell a story? I remember this very quickly. I remember them selling a story that Tom Jones suffered an injury to his Larynx, I think, or his, his vocal cord at one point in singing Thunderball. Was that, uh, uh, were you aware of that, or was that basically studio, studio bullwash? You know,
4: I'm not aware of it, but I'll tell you who will know. And he wrote a fabulous book on the Bond music, John Berlin game, the the music of the James Bond movies. It's, mm-hmm. it's a perfect book to get to answer that question.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure it's apparently something like a strain, it's it's something where he had to be hospitalized temporarily for. I do know that he hits an incredibly high note in the song, but I've yet to be able to find definitive proof that he had this, you know, that he suffered this injury.
4: That's a great song.
0: Yeah, it is it is well thank you very much uh steve rubin for joining uh for joining thanks, us
4: today. had so much fun you guys are great fans. thank you very much steve good questions thank you anthony thanks james thanks
0: joe and, and steve uh, if you, you're
4: so welcome
0: steve if you hang around for just a second we usually do a um, we uh we do a, a round table where we go around and talk about what each of us is doing at the moment and um uh and so forth and then we wrap the show cool well, Anthony. Oh, oh, me. Oh, me? Yeah. Uh, well, I am. Uh, I'm excited because I am still. I'm awaiting the answers to uh, interview questions that I have for Joe Bob Briggs, and I uh, that should be coming in the next uh, week or two. And we've got the. Uh, uh, the first rendering of the cover art for scary monsters magazine where joe bob briggs is going to be on the cover it's my first cover story and i'm looking forward to uh to that very excited about it joe bob is a is a legend amongst horror movie hosts and uh, for anybody who watched in the 80s and, and 90s his uh uh you know his uh um uh, his Joe Bob Briggs drive in and uh and other shows. You you know who you know, you, you kind of grew up with him. So um, and I go back to the seventies and, and even before that with horror hosts. Uh so anyway it's real fun to talk with him. That's what I got next. How about you Anthony
1: Anthony just Anthony. working on
0: festival stuff um getting ready for December. Um talk about the festival. What's um What's the news you got on the uh, for the f- for the festival? You have a date, right, and a location?
3: Either December third or December tenth, and we're looking at uh, Prime Cinemas in Red Bluff. That is a uh, Shasta County and the North State. Uh, is that locked in? It's getting there. <laughs>
0: okay, so yeah, uh, I still yet. have to
3: visit it, sign papers, but no, I, I, we, we should agree with the owner. So unofficially, we're good to go. Um, okay. Very business. They're busy. Guys have to show up with the security deposit. We're good to go there. Uh, the owner is excited. Um and um uh, I think you know it's gonna be great from what I've seen so far. It's a it's very happy to theater. Um the North State is a burgeoning area. It's uh Reading was just an, um made the fourth um most economical city to to mm-hmm. move in as far mm-hmm. as wage growth because People from the bay area are moving up here in droves and they're in their interns so, with them cool so um it's a it's a changing atmosphere um it's very so this is not a twilight zone area no it's know. not the it, Hillside it could line. be an homage to it Steve <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very active area and um i'm pretty fortunate that uh at first it felt like oh crap i moved into an area where there's no film festivals there's no Theaters are going to do this, and yeah. I found a great one. So that that would be a
2: twilight zone right there, Anthony. Yeah,
3: that would be a twilight zone, but right. uh, yeah, it's a good area, and I'm cool. yeah, excited to bring uh, horror to uh, Red Wolf. Joe, what
0: do you got?
2: Oh, what well, I got? Oh, I uh, got uh, movies that we're going to be talking about. We got some really interesting horror news, like you know, of course, nope. Coming out this uh-huh. coming end of next month sometime. Uh, you also got the Monster Palooza convention happening in next week. Uh, good. Uh, let's see. You got the fan fa- fan made film for Halloween three that's on the
0: third channel. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, called channel the third channel going to talk about that and uh, you never know what else I'm going to talk about maybe I'll talk about Anthony's Twilight Zone adventure
0: yes (laughs) Al what you got well I was
1: a uh, monster is a little up in the air at the moment but hopefully we'll be there Uh, I will be at the San Diego Comic Con Uh, convention I'll be outside doing interviews I may be inside briefly we'll see what happens Uh, you might look for me on your program and then, of course, I will be at Silicon with Adam Savage the next month after that as a vendor in our usual, well, maybe not our usual spot, because uh, they're mixing things up a little bit. But once again, we're back there. They've always been very good to us, and we're looking forward to being there again. Cool. There's a couple of and, other little things that may be coming up, but we have to see, because people keep saying, I'm waiting for someone else to get back to me. So, of
4: course. And, and, that's how that goes.
0: And of course, I'll, I'll it, just throw out real quick that I will be at uh, Creatures Con. Uh, in August um, on stage interviewing Beverly Washburn after uh, showing of her film Spider Baby, um, which uh, for any of all of us, you know, fans who grew up in the 60s and, uh, you know, with cult horror, we we all know what Spider Baby, Jack Hill's film. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and that's in uh, Concord and uh, maybe making a, an appearance at Creature Features Day uh in on June twenty fourth. Uh and uh, I believe that's in Arenda. So it's a lot of stuff that's uh that's that's going on. And I may even show up at uh at Silicon to hassle Al to uh you know come in sit by the booth with us. That's it. And you know you have a go. have a few Maybe or ten beers that. and uh you know see see if we can cause like a you know cause disruption.
2: Rocket. I'm so, sure we
1: can.
0: But in any case, all right, that's it. Thank you, uh, you know, thank you all for joining us. Thanks again to Steve Rubin. Uh thank you, Steve. And it's uh you're 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 terrific. Take keep care coming. and Al take us out.
1: Steve, do me a favor, keep writing books. And until then, watch horror films keep
0: America Strong. There, there we amen.
2: go. Not a brilliant so, ending. everyone.
0: And and Steve, you're talking about that's a line from uh, one. If you grew up in the Bay Area in the '70s, you're familiar with Bob Wilkins and uh, and Creature Features, a horror host uh, who was like a legend in the '70s. Actually, I was on his show. What's that?
4: Wow! I was on his show. Were you really? I I came up to the Bay Area to promote my first James Bond book.
0: Nice. See, we are in the presence of royalty. That We're not awesome. worthy. That's We're a good not- way to end it, right there. Wow. <laughs>
1: well, that was a long time wow. ago.
2: Yeah.
0: All right, So guys. you're close enough to sm- you're close enough to smell his cigar smoke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Till next time. Be well, go- guys. Everyone. Take Thank care. Thank you. Good night. Thanks very much.